worship our King, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Sing to him now.
the God who is great and does great things for us. Lord, we come before you now and we just give you praise because of your great name. Lord, uh, we remember today that, uh, yes, you are for us and there's no doubt about that. But, uh, Lord, uh, it is not because of us that you have your being and that you do what you do. It is because of your great name. And, Lord, let us never forget that it's all about your glory. It's not about us. Uh, Lord, let us never forget that it's all about the furthering of your kingdom. It's not about us. But, Lord, we thank you for the benefits we have of knowing you as our Savior and our Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And we want to give you praise today in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Hey, remember to uh, fill out one of those uh, uh, connection cards. You can find that in the in the back of the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, if you're a, if you're new uh, today, or maybe it's your first or second time visit, we would love to have a record of your attendance and get some information to you about our church if you like. Uh, for the rest of us, if you have a prayer request, please fill that out, and we will. Be diligent to pray for those. The pastor and staff, we try to get together every Monday morning and pray over those needs. So please fill that out and know uh, that those will be prayed for. All right? Hey, let's continue to, to worship with this great, great old hymn. Some of you may know it by Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. Others may know it by Our Great Savior. Whatever name you know it by, it's a great, great text. Let's sing it together. Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. Jesus, what a friend for sinners, Jesus, lover of my soul, friends may fail me There is a love. 
there is no one like you but until we come to the point that we realize that without him there is no salvation then we're not really true believers in Christ we're just believers about Christ amen and so this song really helps us see that that we are to come 
as sinners. We are to come and we are to see ourselves as poor and weak and needy in, in, in the sight of God. Amen? And, and, and the, the, the more we see ourselves as in great need, the more a great Savior can come and make a difference in our life. Amen? So let's put ourselves in that, in that mindset. Lord, I need you so desperately right now because I am a sinner. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, come ye wounded, weak and worn. There's a harbor for the broken, where the hopeless are reborn. Come ye lost, afraid, forgotten, let your wandering souls find rest. seated. Sing to him our songs of praise. Hey, speaking of songs of praise, it's, it has been my privilege to uh, have the choir back in the loft, albeit social distanced. 
right? And so praise the Lord for you guys that have, have helped us lead worship today. And we've asked our, all of our praise team members to come down and sing uh, this particular song. And I hope you see this in, in our text today. Uh, you know, Brother Philip is, is famous for preaching out of the Old Testament, but yet showing us Jesus, right? Because he's there. He's just there. And this next, this next song reminds us of that. Uh, later on in the song, you'll hear these words. And the church of Christ was born. Then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old. No, not this new gospel truth. This old gospel truth. Because the gospel was where? In the mind of Christ, in, in the mind of God, of God, in the heart of God, from the very foundation of the world. Amen? And, and so this gospel truth of old shall not kneel shall not faint by his blood and in his name we are by his freedom i am free for the love of jesus christ who has resurrected me it is our prayer today that you have been resurrected by the blood of jesus christ that your sins are forgiven today and uh, that is our sincere prayer for you from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt praise the death and the dead rose from their tombs 
I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and that reverb and uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Test. Testing one. Here we go. Are y'all ready? You need that kind of technical difficulty when you look at this passage. Because it is no doubt one of the, the toughest passages in the Bible. <clears throat> I'm glad to be back in Daniel. Uh, I thought during this pandemic that it would be a good idea to uh, give a little uh, recess, take a little break from Daniel. And what a fitting time to come back to Daniel chapter 9. 
And so we'll get the joy and privilege of looking uh, into the future as Daniel saw it. And we're going to talk about the vision of the 77s, which is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. And understand that many people set their eschatological understanding, what they believe about end times, uh, and systems and charts and graphs and all the things you've ever thought about, they get uh, the starting point from Daniel chapter 9, especially verse 27. Now, we're not going to break down verse 27 today. We're going to talk about the first part of it, and scholars almost agree, uh, not unanimously but close, that uh, the first part we're going to see today, people are in agreement to what it actually talks about, and I am certainly in that same vein. So the vision of the 77s. Listen to the word. Remember, we were studying Daniel's incredible prayer. Daniel did not stand aloof from Israel's problems. He actually prayed in corporate solidarity. That means he knew he was a sinner. And, well, that's a good lesson for us. It's not just to pray for them out there. It's to pray for us in here. And our condition before God and Daniel prays with corporate solidarity. He knew he was a sinner and that <clears throat> the nation needed to turn to the Lord. And that included Daniel as well, as godly as a man as he was. He knew full well. So listen, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people. Notice, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. And presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. Wow. At the time of the evening sacrifice. I can't encourage you enough to think about every phrase. Evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I, now, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And thus, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And he's going to give you six different things that are actually in couplets. To finish the transgression... To put an end to sin, first couplet. And to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, second couplet. And to seal both vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And verse 27. And... He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
Now, I'm sure you are familiar with the good news, bad news stories that you hear <clears throat> that are often told to people, especially comedians uh, who are on the stage. They tell you, well, here's the good news, here's the bad news. Well, I heard of one the other day that talked about this guy in the hospital who had two broken legs. And the nurse comes in and tells him that there's good news and bad news. And the guy asks for the bad news first. And the nurse says, Where? well, we're going to have to remove your legs. And the guy says, what's the good news? And the nurse says, the guy beside you wants to buy your sneakers. <laughs> All right. That's pretty good, right? Did you know that there are even a few good news, bad news stories and jokes concerning pastors? Y'all get that, right? Such as, the good news was that the church attendance rose dramatically the last three weeks. The bad news was, I was on vacation, right? <laughs> Don likes to say that to me. The preaching was so good last week, preacher, when I wasn't there, right? Or the attendance was up. He does that to me. Here's another bad news, good news. The youth group in your church comes to your house for a surprise visit. Bad news, it's in the middle of the night, and they are armed with toilet paper and shaving cream to decorate your home, right? Well, Daniel 9 is about good news, bad news. As you read down through those verses, it's a compilation of good news Bad news. Good news, Jerusalem and the temple will be restored. Bad news, you're going to rebuild it in really troubled times. Good news, the Messiah will come to that city and to that temple. Bad news, the Messiah will die and be cut off in that city. Best news ever, when he dies, he will be the final sacrifice for our sins. And no more blood will ever need to be shed. For the forgiveness of our sins. He will be the perfect sacrifice for sin. This is more than Daniel could have ever imagined. Here's some more bad news. Many will not know that the prophecies were given. And they will reject the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's still true today. So as we approach the 77s, please understand what Daniel is contemplating. Jerusalem is some... Uh, 600 miles away, and the temple is in ruins. And Daniel is praying in earnest about this. He gives a remarkable prayer in chapter uh, 9, 17 through, 10, uh, 17 through 19. But the moment he began to pray, according to what we just read, the decree went out. Isn't that awesome? Do you think God answers prayer? The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Think about this. Uh, it is going to take some 95 years for all of this to play out in its fullness. And the timing of God's answer to Daniel, however, is equal, perfectly timed with the actual prayer and the intercession where God gives the answer. And it's accompanied by an angelic visit. Daniel's very explicit as he explains it. He does not uh, present a division between the people's sin and his He's in corporate solidarity. <clears throat> he sees his own sin. And I think, again, as we pray for our nation, we need to consider this prayer. We cannot simply pray about them. We must pray about us. We must confess all of our known sin. And so Daniel has read the scriptures. You believe that? He knows the prophecies. Chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Isn't it a good thing to read the Bible? And what's painting 
what, what's in Daniel's mind? Jeremiah has said 70 years. Isaiah reveals that it's going to be Cyrus that gives the decree, gives the, pushes the people out to go back and rebuild, to return to the land and rebuild the temple. So think about this. He, he's got it in his mind. But God will now interrupt the prayer. And he sends a divine interrupter. And his name is Gabriel. He's going to make some stunning appearances in the New Testament, you reckon? During the birth narratives. But Daniel would have recognized this individual from the previous vision. So, the ESV says he came to me in swift flight. I guess this is just the best way for people to struggle with the Hebrew here. But that interpretation has nothing to do with flying. When it says he came to me in swift flight, it literally means in exhaustion to be exhausted. In other words, it's, it's pointing out Daniel's exhausted state as he is praying. Okay? Folks, this is not uh, in the mouth, through the stomach, watch out. Oh, in the mouth, through the gums, watch out, stomach, here it comes. This is not what you pray right before you get your food, right? It's not, uh, I, now I lay me down to sleep kind of praying. Daniel is exhausted. And he's praying like this. And God uses Gabriel to bring the answer to Daniel while he is still praying. So, in this vision that Daniel receives concerning the holy city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, Gabriel is going to basically give him good news and bad news. Daniel gives us this detail at the end of verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifices. Now, the end of verse 21 is remarkable. Gabriel came to him about the time of what? The evening sacrifice and offering. I think this is an interesting thing to say at this point. And I think this will prove to have a major significance on the rest of the study in the book of Daniel. He's gone. He has, he has been gone for how long from Jerusalem? Seventy years. That's seven decades. How long had it been since he actually was able to participate in an evening offering? He's in Babylon, folks. How long has it been? Seventy years. Yet Daniel's commitment to Yahweh God is reflected in the fact that all of those rituals are still cycling in his mind and in his heart. So when we just read the Bible so fast, we miss things, don't we? It's the evening sacrifice. It's been 70 years. The temple is destroyed. And yet in Daniel's mind, he's thinking about an offering and a sacrifice at the time of the evening offering. He may not be able to offer a sacrifice, but he's still engaged in a time of prayer. It's still circling in his mind the significance of without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In verse 22, Daniel says, he gave me understanding by speaking to me. And verse 23 is absolutely remarkable. It's possible that the decree that went out was the one issued by Cyrus for the people to return home. Yet there's also a sense of, of the fact that God is working in the midst of Daniel praying. So, as you pray, Daniel, the decree had already gone out. So, Gabriel then tells him plainly that he has come to tell Daniel because you are, what's the text say? Don't miss any of it. Highly esteemed. Now, how many of you would like to hear this when you get to glory? That's the strength of what's said here. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Daniel was a sinner, was he not? Yet Daniel was not only forgiven, and he was not only a justified sinner, 
He was one of God's choice servants. The entirety of his exile in Babylon, what have we learned? We've learned that this man walked with God. It's a wonderful thing to be a sinner saved by grace. Amen? It is. It's wonderful. It is also wonderful to know that God has taken your sin. He's cast it as far as the east is from the west. Yet, don't you long to hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, if you get to heaven, it will be the same way everyone else gets there. Jesus' blood and righteousness through faith alone, by grace alone. Right? Yet, what a thing to hear on that last day. Daniel got to hear it before he ever arrived in heaven. What a statement. You are highly esteemed, Daniel, and you have lived your faith and integrity before the Lord. This is going to be a brand new revelation on what he had been studying in Jeremiah. In other words, think about this. He's saturated in the Word of God. He's studying the prophet Jeremiah. And now, beginning in verse 24, we're going to be, he's going to get this vision from the Lord. Then Gabriel says, Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city. This is going to be followed by six things or couplets. Now, what is Daniel concerned about in exile? He's, returned, he's, he's concerned about returning to the land. Right? Now, back up just for a moment. When it says 70 weeks, understand that many translations say 70 weeks, but the literal translation in the Hebrew is 70 sevens, which if you multiply that out by years, that's 490 years. So, he knows that 70 years are almost over. If you were reading Jeremiah, and you would see that 70 years have been given uh, in exile... Would you not be excited about the fact that that's about to end? And you're going to get to go to your homeland. You're going to get to go back. So, he knows from Isaiah that Cyrus will be the one who will issue the decree to enable them to come home. Now, if you were a Jew, what was the worst thing that could ever happen to you? It was to be removed from your land and to be exiled. The greatest covenant blessing was for God to restore the land. So, Daniel's heart and mind is there. Yet the prophets told us that there were two aspects of returning to the land. This is important for you to listen. This this is vitally important. So the first is to physically return from Babylon to Jerusalem to the land that they had been banished from. Why were they banished to begin with? Y'all awake? They were banished because of their sin. The other part, and most significant part, was not coming back to the land, but to return to the Lord God from a broken covenant. They had not kept the covenant, right? And so there's this dual thing. Please remember that the exile took place squarely because they had violated the covenant. It was because of this that God brought them To the ultimate covenant curse. And if you read Deuteronomy 24, what's that curse? You will be banished and exiled from your land. So God is not only going to bring physically them back, but he's also going to renew a covenant relationship between him and the returned people that's going to be based on repentance and faith. Don't miss that. It's so vital that you see this. It's not just about returning to a land and building a temple. It's about the fact that ultimately they broke the covenant. And God is going to send a new covenant that ultimately he is going to establish with his people. So, I know that many people get enthusiastically excited when they start thinking about 
1948, the fact that the Jews returned back to Israel. But I think it's also important for all of us to remember that the great promise of restoration in Scripture is not just physical land and return, but it's a renewal of repentance that issues forth into an establishment of a new covenant. So to return to the land in unbelief is still to return to the land in unbelief. Right? To be an unbeliever is still to be an unbeliever. To return to the land without embracing the Messiah is still to be headed toward hell. No matter who you are and what land you're returning to physically, if you don't turn to Christ, if you don't turn to God through the new covenant accomplished in Christ, there is no salvation. So there is no salvific or redemptive significance about Israelis living in Israel. Land doesn't save you. Jesus saves. So we need to think about this. God says, when I bring you back, I'm going to bring you back in repentance. I'm going to bring you back to forgive your sins. So he will bring them back and heal them. He will renew the covenant. He will bring a renewal. Peter Gentry nails it. Here's what he says. You can get the people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? Right? There's a difference here. In Isaiah... Uh, Cyrus is the human instrument that God is going to use. And understand, this is a pagan king. And God tells that pagan king, you're going to do this. And what does he do? Exactly what God tells him. That ought to give us confidence today, folks. God is in control of the U.S., just like he was Israel. He's got it, okay? But it's not just about Cyrus, a king, that is actually a pagan. It's actually about a suffering servant who's going to provide... Redemption. You have the promises of Isaiah to the return of the land. But what else do you have in Isaiah? You've got the promise of the Redeemer who will forgive his people from their sins. Do you all know this great text? Isaiah 53. Don't you find it interesting that in the Jewish Mishnah, Isaiah 53 is not in there? Wonder why? Because it's all about Jesus. Right? And we know that. So, Christ will be the atonement. The foremost thing in Daniel's prayer is to return from exile. He does plead for forgiveness. Yet Gabriel says not only will God bring his people back, he will also accomplish for the people forgiveness of sins and everlasting righteousness, which is so eternally important for all of us today. So what Gabriel says to Daniel by way of revelation is good news and bad news. The good news is what God is going to accomplish for their salvation is absolutely awesome. The bad news is that after their restoration to land, there's actually going to be more desolation, right? So that is more than just the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah. In fact, it's going to be 70 times 7, and it's going to be utter desolation. In other words, folks, if you think 70 years was bad, just wait for 70 sevens. That's exactly what Daniel hears. It's not just 70 years and you're going to the land. You need to multiply that by, multiply 70 times 7. That's the desolation. That's the destruction that is coming. So, again, the translation is literally 77. So what he is about to receive focuses on the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. And there's going to be good news, bad news. There's going to be salvation, but there's also going to be judgment. Do you remember that Daniel, through the entire book, has kept a four 
well, actually, he's kept a five-kingdom approach to everything we've seen in Daniel. Y'all remember that? How many of you remember? What are those kingdoms? Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. But there's a fifth stone that the Bible says is cut out without hands. And this, this kingdom will be the kingdom of the Son of God. Right? I want to remind you of this. Daniel has never diverted from this five-kingdom scheme. And we can see it bore out in history. Wasn't it awesome to study about uh, Alexander the Great before he ever lived? And what he would do? We went through all that. And we see these kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Rome. And then that fifth stone made without hands, the empire and kingdom of the Son of God, which will have what? No end. All the kingdoms of this world will fail. Only the kingdom of the Son of God will continue. So there has been no departure from this. And what we're going to see in these verses is the kingdom of the Son of God. That's what's in the text. So the 77s have the following purposes. And we need to see them in couplets. So you've listened to the longest part of the sermon. But let me give you these couplets, right? Here's the deal. When I get to the end of this, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God will prick your heart of your need for Jesus. And if you're here today and you're lost... I hope and pray that you will see the gospel clearly. My prayer is that you will have a desire to have an end to your sin. Isn't that awesome? An end to your sin. So the couplet, 77s are decreed. This is in your bulletin. To finish the transgression and put an end to sin. I'm not trying to be cute. I'm not giving you an acrostic. I'm not trying to preach something that's not in the Bible just because I've got a topic that I think will warm your heart. I'm just giving you the Bible. And that's the best thing for you to get. No cuteness, no cleverness, no embellishing. All I did was told you what was in the text. Seventy-sevens are decreed to finish the transgression and put an end to sin. Now the imagery has the imagery of stuffing something in a sack and sealing it up. The second statement is very, very similar. So what does this, what, when does this happen? Well, I want to remind you that it happens on the cross of Calvary when Jesus is lifted up for your sins. That is what's going on with this text. Finish the transgression and put an end to sin. The language is stunning. These events don't happen at the end of time. These events happen when the Messiah came to this earth. That's when this takes place. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. Listen. After he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He finished the transgression. Accomplished. The purpose. Sat down because the work is over. Sin is paid for. So the idea is that when Jesus offers himself up, not only as our high priest, but also as the ultimate sacrifice, he does something that no sacrifice under, that under, under the old covenant could ever do. He puts an end once for all to all our sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He puts an end to our transgression and to our sin. Well, didn't I sin this morning, Pastor? Yeah, you probably did. I'm, yes, you did. But the idea is not that no one ever sins anymore. Christ offers himself up once for all so that he becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sin in such a way that sin is forever dealt with, listen, in the presence of God. Because that's where it's important. Sin has to be dealt with in the very presence of God. And this is where it speaks. If you are a child of God, 
then you bear that sin no more. That sin was born by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Folks, this is at the heart of everything that we believe as Christians. It's called the finished work of Christ on the cross. As the old hymn writer says, when Satan tempts you to despair, you remind him that it was paid in full. What about, it is well with my soul? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it. You think that hymn writer ever read Daniel 9? There's an end put to sin. So, there is therefore, the Bible says, get this, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt to those who are in Christ Jesus. He did this by dying on the cross. And he did so in a substitutionary manner. He died in your stead and on your behalf. Every year, the people of Israel would make their way to Jerusalem. It's called the Day of Atonement, right? The writer of Hebrews would remind us the very fact that they had to do this every single year was actually not a reminder of the forgiveness of sins. It was actually a reminder of the fact that their sins still remained, right? Where there is no longer a sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says, there is no more sin. Do you understand how awesome this is? Do you understand the magnitude of what Daniel is receiving at this point? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ the Lord, then all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been laid on him. And he's made atonement for those sins. And he's cast them as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. And you bear them no more. Hallelujah! You understand how awesome this is? He put an end to sin and transgression. Not that you're not still going to sin. But in the very presence of God, he accepts the obedience of the Son of God on your behalf. When he sees you, he says he has perfectly obeyed the law, not because he did it, but because the Son of God did it. So finish the transgression and put an end to sin. Number two, 77s are decreed to atone for sin and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Okay, y'all ready to do a little Bible drilling? Isaiah 53, let me show you this. Here we find what God's suffering servant will accomplish on behalf of his people, which is atoning for sin and bringing in everlasting righteousness. Look at chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Can you all hear this? And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Folks, that's atonement. It's laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So when the prophet says atone for iniquity, that's exactly what he's talking about. When Jesus offered himself up on Calvary, he made atonement for all our sins. He was crushed with the weight of God's divine justice that we deserved. He was crushed for our iniquities. You know, sheep aren't real intelligent. You ever figured that out? We've all gone astray. But he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Notice verse 10 in this glorious. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53:10. He has put him to grief. Check this out. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Who's the offspring? Who's the fruit? You and me. Right? It's the fruit of his labor. It's the satisfaction of what the Son of God was going to accomplish. What what an amazing text of Scripture. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. My God. Jesus said this, right? In fulfillment of Psalm Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are the fruit of his suffering. Think about this. His days will be prolonged. What does that mean in Isaiah 53.10? It's called resurrection. Jesus will be satisfied. Why? Always remember this. Jesus Christ will get exactly what he paid for. He is satisfied. Why? Because his suffering brought redemption to his people. Jesus Christ will get what he paid for. Do you think that Jeremiah... 31, 31 through 33 was swirling around in, in, Jeremiah, in Daniel's mind. Let me show you it, if I might. Chapter 31, verse 33. I'm, I'm sorry, 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin. Y'all getting this? He is... Atoning for sin and bringing in everlasting life. I want you to listen to one passage in Hebrews. Mark these down for the sake of time. I want you to look at this on your own, okay? Isaiah 51, verse 1, 5, 6, and 8. Isaiah 51, 1, 5, 6, and 8. And that goes along with atoning for sin. Listen to Hebrews 2, 17. The Bible says... Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Atoning sacrifice. Now, some of you are haunted by your sins. Some of us have a dirty conscience because of our sins. Before some of us drift off to sleep at night, that's the last thing you remember. And when you wake up in the morning, that's the first thing on your mind. To think about your sin and its implication actually gives you knots in your stomach. I want to tell you some good news. Are you ready for it? If you're in Christ Jesus, God remembers your sins no more. Isn't that awesome? If you are in Christ Jesus... Look, I didn't make this up. It says, I will remember their sins no more. That's how awesome. Perhaps, think about this. Notice next, it says to bring everlasting righteousness. Is this not too a product of the cross? How was it accomplished? It was accomplished by the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about two massive categories in the book of Romans concerning human history. Y'all know what those categories are? Nobody's exempt from this, by the way, no matter what your race or color. You're born, either, you're born in Adam, 
at the beginning. But then we have to consider being in Christ. And these two massive foundational principles Paul fleshes out in Romans chapter 5. What do we know about in Adam? Everybody's condemned because Adam's sin and, every, and Adam's sin has been imputed to all of the human race. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, if you say that's not true, then we can't say that the righteousness of Christ is going to be imputed to us. Either one of them's true or neither of them's true, right? So we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet in Jesus Christ, there can be a different reality. The act of obedience of Jesus or the righteousness of Christ can become yours if you are in Christ so that grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. That's the teaching of Romans. So what is everlasting righteousness? It's exactly what you need to stand before a sovereign holy God in heaven. You need everlasting righteousness. It is exactly what you need to stand before God so that you're not consumed. So that you're not cast into utter darkness and torment and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Even without any demerits in your life, you still could not stand in the presence of God. Why? Because you have to have the presence of righteousness. Even if you could keep all the law, you still have to have the presence of righteousness. But I got news for you. You can't keep the law. No one has ever kept the law. Period. You can't. Except Christ. Right? So because God requires the very presence of righteousness in heaven. And presence of righteousness is given to you as a gift from God. Not of works. It's given to you by a gift from God. So the everlasting righteousness comes to those who have faith in Jesus. Who believe into Christ and Him alone and His righteousness. So having been justified by faith. Romans 5 says we now have peace with God. Everlasting righteousness. We are clothed by the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Everything that you need to be in God's presence forever has been accomplished by the Son of God. What God wants from you is faith in what His Son did. Can you get the gospel any clearer? What does God want from you this morning? He wants you to put faith in what the Son of God did for you. Listen to this again. Finish the transgression and put it into sin. Atone for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. That's what the Son of God has done. And I want to remind you that the vilest of sinners that will cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, God will save. And He will clothe you in everlasting righteousness. If this takes place even, if this takes place even you, even if you are on death row for murder, you will be accepted before the Son of God as the Son is. Do y'all realize how powerful that is? Even if you're on death row for murder and you have a death row conversion experience and you put your faith in the Son of God, you are accepted before the Father just as much as the Son of God is. If you don't believe that, you don't understand the gospel. And neither do you understand the magnitude of your own sinful heart. Are y'all listening? This is what God accomplishes through the gospel. This is the gospel. Again, if you don't believe this, you haven't come to grips with the magnitude of your own sin. Once you're clothed in righteousness, through Him, through faith in Him, I want to remind you of something too. You can't lose that standing before God, no matter what people say. Because everlasting righteousness cannot be taken away. Hello! Aren't you so, aren't you so thankful that eternal life is nothing short of eternity? 
How come people can't read that and see what the text says? I give to them eternal life. Is God an Indian giver? Does he have an eraser in heaven? Oh, I wrote your name down before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life. But sometime down the line, I flipped my pencil over and I erased your name. Duh. Come on, folks. Everlasting righteousness is everlasting righteousness. You didn't work to get it, and your performance will not help you keep it. It's given to you by the gift of God. So this is the gospel. So finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for the sin, everlasting righteousness. Here's the final one. It's to creed up, seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seal can mean to put a sign or approval on something like Darius, right, upon the tomb of lions, chapter 6, verse 17. But it can also mean to close something up. And if that is the meaning, which I think it is, then I believe that Jesus is going to break these seals in Revelation 5. Okay? When only the Son of God, are y'all listening, is worthy to take the scroll and open up the seals. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means that Jesus is the consummation of God's revelation in redemptive history. That's what that means. When you have Jesus, you have everything that God needs to say to you. Oh, I wish people would get this. Do you ever just get flustered at people's lack of understanding theologically? And the tangents that people run off on? Don't you realize that Jesus is all you need? Don't you understand that everything God the Father does points toward the Son? Don't you understand that Hebrews says that the prophets came and the preachers preached, but the Son of God came, and that's God's final word? And all the prophets spoke of Him. He is the consummation of all the age. He is the revelation of redemptive history. So someone comes along and says, I have more revelation from God. Tell them they're a liar. If they say the church father said this, tell them they're a liar. Who cares what they said? What did Jesus say? What's the Bible say? Right? Have enough gumption to say, that's not what the Word of God says. My Bible says this about the Son of God, that He is enough. I don't need Jesus plus anything else. I need Jesus only for salvation. And I said this 100,000 times here probably. If, I go, if, Jesus, if I'm going to go to heaven, Jesus is going to take me there. And if Christ doesn't take me there, I'm just going to be damned. Do you have that much confidence in the Son of God? You better. He's the very one who accomplished our salvation. Don't come up here because I'm spitting. Right? And you might get something, right? That aerosol stuff going out. It's just the way it is. It plopped right on my notes. Now the Bible, many Bibles will say holy place. Some of your Bibles will have it in italics. But I want to remind you that the holy one was the fulfillment of the holy place. Okay? How do we know that? Well, you've got what Jesus said, and I better read this one to you. I know it's a little late. Isaiah 61. And somebody's going to walk into the temple and actually say this. Listen, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Y'all remember this? When he takes the scroll and the Pharisees want to kill him? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And you can read all the way down through Isaiah 61. When it says anoint the most holy, it is referring to the Son of God coming in human flesh. So it is, is it any wonder how this came to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice? Y'all think that's an accident? That Daniel's got it circling in his mind, evening sacrifice, sins are atoned for. We've got to do it every year. 
But God the Father says, oh no, there's coming a day when the Son of God, the Son of God will leave the confines of heaven and come to this earth, robe himself in human, become man so that our sins could be atoned for. Isn't that amazing? Awesome. The ultimate purpose of the 77s is for Jesus to come and fulfill the offering and all the sacrifices and to inaugurate the new and everlasting covenant in the blood of Jesus. That's the main reason for the 77s. God the Father has done absolutely everything necessary for your salvation and your everlasting righteousness through His Son. God has done everything possible for you to be saved through the Son of God. Why would you not want to take God up on the best of all offers? Bank your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was holy and righteous. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God died for sinners. And here's the call. Would you put your trust in the one who loved you and gave himself up for you? Would you? Would you not want to leave this place knowing that you have an end to your sin? And God remembers them no more. You can have a righteousness that does not derive from you, but comes from Jesus and comes through faith in him. Jesus Christ, unless I've made, not made this clear is the glorious theme of the 77s. And I pray that you know Jesus Christ and that you trust him with all your heart. Can you actually say today with a verbal testimony, Jesus Christ is my righteousness and he is my Savior? Can you say that? Unless Jesus is your righteousness, then there is no way you will ever stand in the presence of a holy God. No way possible. And I'm going to do something a little different because we've been... Without an invitation, and I hate it. I hate it. I like an invitation. I like to call sinners to repentance. So here's the deal today. If you know full well that you are still in your sins, and if you died today, you alone will pay the penalty for that. Right? If you know full well that you don't have everlasting righteousness because you've never trusted Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone to save you, let's put it this way. If you want to end to your sin... Would you respond today and come to this altar? I'm not going to talk to you right now, okay, because of everything going on. But by you coming to this altar, you're saying, I want the Son of God to put an end to my sin. I'm tired of laying my head on my pillow at night, knowing full well that I'm in my sin, and if I die, I'm going to be separated from the King, period. I want to remind you that Jesus saves, and He can save you. Let's stand to our feet. Come to this altar and pray if you know full well you're lost and you want to be saved. Lord, I come and I confess Bowing here I find my rest And without you I If, if you're saved today, you need to sing this with everything you've got. The one that guides my Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. No matter how much you sin, listen to this. I'm sorry, go ahead. Here we are, right here. Listen. 
to uh, take us out from the back row uh, out, okay? And we appreciate you helping us with that. And uh, let's, uh, let's sing that new song that we learned today. Uh, oh, oh, give him, uh, uh, I can't think. Oh, pray, yeah, praise the Father, praise the Son. Sorry. Let's sing that as we, as we go today, okay? Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. God bless. Have a blessed week this week.